The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lives, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them, because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is a doula, wellness, and birth coach, as well as the founder of Mama Glow, a platform dedicated to supporting women along the childbearing continuum. Named one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, Latham Thomas is a fierce advocate for birth equity and works to bridge policy gaps in maternal health. She's co-founder of the Continuum Conference, a gathering centering the experience of fertility, pregnancy, and new motherhood. Cultivating her wellness practice over nearly a decade, she has served as a doula and lifestyle guru for celebrity clients, including Alicia Keys, Anne Hathaway, Ashley Graham, DJ Khaled, I'm sorry I had to, Gabrielle Union, and more. Latham is a graduate of Columbia University and author of two best-selling books, Own Your Glow, A Soulful Guide to Luminous Living and Crowning the Queen Within, as well as Mama Glow, A Hip Guide to Your Fabulous Abundant Pregnancy, and I would almost consider getting pregnant again just to work with her. But even in my non-pregnant state, our conversation was a good reminder that we can't always be go, 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 and that we all deserve time and energy towards, as she refers to it, optimal wellness, spiritual growth, and radical self-care. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Latham. I am so excited to talk to you today as a wellness expert. Like I need a little extra wellness in my life right now, and I'm excited to pick your brain. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Sarah? I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. I'm doing all right. How, where am I finding you? We are finding me in Brooklyn, in my home, Mm -hmm. and you're finding me coming back actually from a funeral. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. I get Sorry. to, um, you know, be part of a life journey on the beginning and obviously at the end. And so I'm just settling from two major life events. My son graduated high school. And then literally after that, he had prom. And the next day we went up wow. to my uncle's funeral. So, wow. Right. That's the circle the of passage life. of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so intense. I was going to ask you about your son because I know that you work with so many people on that stage of bringing life into their worlds. And it must be so crazy because you see from your own experience with your son how quickly the time passes. The adage of the days are long, but the years are short. Do you feel that? Absolutely. I mean, I feel feel like in COVID, the days have felt really short actually Mm -hmm. you start you're like where the time fly to yeah you know raising someone who's about to be 18 it's really interesting to look back and I think back to moments I'm like oh my god yeah he was little then and I thought he was so big when he was like four I was like oh my god he's huge and I'm at a life stage where I could either start over you know and and try it again or I could um, move into this empty nest phase of my life but I, I certainly agree with this idea of really just 
being present to the experience and thankful for everything that you experience, everything that you endure, everything that you feel challenged by, because these moments are ephemeral. Like they just, they pass and they don't come back and they are what they are. And if you can live into the the present and and stay really connected to this gift of being in in relationship with someone else who's like dependent upon you and the way that they are for parenthood. It's such an amazing life transformation that you undergo and, and one that I think teaches you a lot. And so I feel really blessed by it, but I certainly go by this idea of like, do not blink because you miss everything. As soon as you shut your eyes, they're like six feet tall, they're graduating, like you cannot blink. <laughs> Yeah, obviously that resonates with me a lot too as someone who's a busy parent of two. And I sometimes find that I'm like desperately trying to write things down at night that they've said or capture these moments in some way. And then in my own way, I add it to my list of pressures too. Like I'm like, oh, I'm not keeping adequate journals. I take a thousand photos. I never print them. It is. It's like the great Tiger Woods said, father time is unbeaten, but it's true. It's like you want to freeze these moments, but you can't. And so how do you be present while also being mindful of, I want to preserve? Inherently in trying to do so, you're often taken out of being present. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a way to do both. I I think there's a way to capture a moment, but not let capturing the moment overtake you. Mm -hmm. You know, you miss Mm -hmm. a lot when you're looking at your phone and not watching the recital or not present at the soccer game or your kid is doing something really cute and you're scrolling, you know? So I, I think that there's a lot to learn, I think, for all of us to put our phones down. And so I think it's okay to give ourselves grace and and not feel like the measure of our parenting is we have to document everything. I think it's okay to like free ourselves from that. And I think that social media has been a gift in so many ways because it's connected a lot of us and it's allowed us to to express and also to like, you know, make careers. A lot of people do most of their work through social, right? But it's also been, I think, a space where, you know, we lose sight of what's really important. You're obviously so kind of immersed in this space, but without that social media community and without the Pinterest mom to compare yourself to, did you feel like there was less pressure on you in your motherhood early days with your son? You know, I think that there was a different orientation around what pressure was. There were certainly still the things that we see on social, but it was in life, right? So it was just like impersonal spaces. So for instance, (laughs) like you would see now on digital, you'll see sort of this battling of mom types, archetypes, right? Where there's like this crew or this type of parent versus this type of parent or the person that does this versus that. A lot of polarities that you end up seeing, right? And so what what happened then was we did have Facebook, but it wasn't still what it is today. But in person, you would see this, right? You would see sometimes it would be catty, other times it'd be collaborative and supportive, but sometimes you'd see these spaces where you had to kind of figure out like, Oh, oh, I see what kind of group this is. All right. Yeah, I want to hang out with them or not. Right. And so most of my time I felt like was, you know, basically in parks, 
my kid gravitated towards some kids. I end up meeting their parents. We end up friends, right? Or I'm on the bench. The babies are playing. You see somebody and they're like, oh, hey, how are you? Oh, good. Oh, mine is this age. And you start talking. So a lot of it was just IRL, you know? And then there were always listservs, right? So there was always a way to kind of like tap into community. But again, it wasn't the same way. There were chat, chat groups, chat rooms, listservs, but there weren't like cohesive communities like we see right now where like you, for instance, like you cultivate a community, like this is not something that we had back then. It was really just like more in person. So I don't know that I would say the pressure was different or that we we're even aware of it in the same way. But I would say there was a, a tighter ecosystem around you. So you either knew the people that you were directly connected to, and then those who were sort of encircling you were more like family and friends. There were probably more pressures that stemmed from like family members versus like strangers, right? I could say for just and as, as an observer and what I know from what I see in clients is it is an enormous amount of pressure on new mothers and parents right now who are living in the age of social media, a thousand percent. I think that there are unrealistic expectations set forth, you know, expectations. And then I think that individuals set high bars for themselves and not bars that they not necessarily, that they can't necessarily achieve, but they set bars for things that like they don't want to actually achieve, <laughs> right? For to show off or for like, you know, like I need to look like this. And so I'm going to go do this thing. On the other side of that, though, is what I think that's really beautiful, Sarah, is the vulnerability that I see on social media and the truth telling that I see on social media and the parents that are really using it as a tool to foster community and to disrupt this culture of perfection and culture of plasticity, right? And, and create like more of a grounding and real community of people who are actually just like, you know, doing what they can and not I mean, to having it all and other lies, right? Like not pretending to have everything in place, but like really being honest about where they stand and, and where they are in life. And if you think about that, people are gravitating a lot towards that type of content and that type of messaging, right? They just want truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, something that comes up for me right now, just because I had just seen it in a former Bible of mine, the Daily Mail, which I'm actually clean from, but I do still go on to their like she portion, which is just, you know, the trashy celeb, but not like the <laughs> horribly salacious and upsetting stories that they would include. I don't know if you saw this. It was Emily Ratajkowski. She posed in a bathing suit with her son. And first of all, you know, her body looks gorgeously like as though nothing has ever happened to it. And then there's a lot of upset over the way that she's holding her son. And the headline read like, she has yet to address the people who are upset with how she's holding her son. Oh. Which I'm like, why should she care about how other people think that she's holding her son, first of all? But then there is something about, you're talking about the enormous amount of pressure. I think whether I had no babies my body would never look like Emily Ratajkowski. Do you know what I mean? That does not mean that she should feel ashamed to show off her body the way that it was made. But there is, I do think, especially 
amongst women and the pressure that we put on our physical bodies, and then our expectation to snap back into this kind of pre-pregnancy form so quickly. How do you feel about people kind of sharing that part of the journey? I think that, I think there's a couple of things, right? Mm -hmm. One is that, you know, when we're talking about pressure, people feel enormous pressure to get to a type of body that is acceptable by sort of dominant culture standards, right? And what, what does that mean? And But there's also sort of this dialogue about like real women versus like what aren't, you know, people say, oh, this is not a real body. Everybody is real in terms of real or not real or unrealistic versus realistic. Everybody's bodies are different. Like what happens for, to our bodies and through our bodies in the process of motherhood is holy and it's sacred and it's incredible. And it's, first of all, the most dynamic thing. And for us to hang people up and also hang ourselves up around my body expanding in this way and not shrinking back. It's like, mm-hmm. what kind, like, it's to me, it's just like, why is that where our attention is flowing? It's very dangerous. So I, I think mm-hmm. that the, the way that I, you know, when I'm talking to folks primarily is, you know, helping people get in right relationship with their own body, right? And, mm-hmm. and what their body is capable of and what they need to do to support their body, but also to understand the incredible mechanisms at work that make it possible for you to become a parent. And make it possible to feed your baby, make it possible for you to like do all the things that you do. Think about what we're living through. We're living through a freaking pandemic. And some of us got smaller and some of us got larger. And guess what? Your body kept you alive, right? So I think it's important to like just just step back away from this this framework of of size because it's so dangerous, really. It is. And Latham, you are so much more evolved than me because I hear all the words that you're saying. And in my mind, I'm just like, but could I get those abs? Do you know what I mean? I like see that body and I'm like, hmm, maybe if I like do this, that or the other. But yes, I intellectually understand that. Obviously, it's like, you know, everybody wants what they don't have. And, right. You know, and it's hard to remember to honor our bodies. Right. And the truth is, is that I think there are so many layers to it and it goes even deeper. But I do think the transition for a lot of people into motherhood is layered and intense. and the shift in identity is so huge. And so the physical being that we occupy, that not only then feels and looks different than it did prior to doing that, sometimes doesn't match up with that new person that you're also sort of feeling like emotionally and mentally. So it's a lot for people to process. And I, I really applaud people like you too, who allow for a space to encourage people to really understand like, look at what your body has done and the privilege that you have been able to have to bring somebody into this life. Because I think too often we're just caught up in like, well, what about our old life? Are we losing? Mm -hmm. What about my old self? Mm -hmm. Am I losing? You know, what, what has changed? So obviously I think a lot of us get caught up with that, but you know, before we get into any of that, I want to ask you, I think we're also aware the last year, how much we've lost and the sacrifices we've made and how our lives have changed. But what do you think you've gained? Yeah. You know, I always have looked at COVID through a lens of blessing. It's like when somebody asks you about like 
you know, what are the things if you could do over what you regret? It's like when you start thinking about like stuff that you can change, which you can't, by the way. Right. When you start thinking like that, it's like you, you end up unraveling stuff that got you to where you are. Like, so all the choices and all the steps that I took to get to where I am today, I would rather not unravel, right. To like take a different path because I wouldn't, I don't know who I would be right now with you if that were the case, right? Like, where would I be in my journey? And so what I, when I think about COVID, it actually was an accelerator for so many of us who probably had things that we were backburnering that we should have done that we never got around to. And there was like space, there was mental space, there was emotional space that was a lot probably like erupting. There was grounding at the home. There was the opportunity to be with family. And I think for a lot of us, it was the opportunity to be with family for too much time, right? But but still you were like, okay. Too much opportunity. Too much opportunity, right? Some days. But at the same time, never ever probably having these like a solid year again where you could spend that much time with your kids up underneath you. And for me to have a teenager who was leaving the house in a year, it was like incredible to have my son with me. And especially as we were sort of moving through this incredible the social justice movement and waves of protest and and upheaval and then with the election all these things were coming up but you know even as we were like kind of having this like new wave of the movement for black lives and having a son who is six four i was so grateful that he was home mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. i knew where he was and i didn't have to worry these are things i have to think about right um, as a mother and, and, you know, mothers of black and brown children have to think like this. Right. And so I was rested in that time because I was not worried about my son. Right. And so there was things like that that I was really grateful for. You know, one of the things I was most grateful for was really the, the ability to be pressured into pivoting business wise. Mm-hmm. That I think was something that I did not anticipate. I'm a Taurus. So first of all, I hate change. Same. I hate change. I hate moving. Same. I hate, I like, if the plans change, I'm pissed. If things are mm-hmm. moving in a different direction, I wasn't told, I'm pissed. If if you say you and I are hanging out and a fourth person is coming and, some, and they oh, bring no. somebody, I, no. I'm pissed, right? I'm like, wait, who's like, no, you ha- mm-hmm. we have to know everything. And it has to be a certain way. Otherwise, it's going to show in our face and in our attitude, right? Mm-hmm. And then what is COVID? It's all change. And so what we're dealing with every single day as mothers, as people, as business people, as caregivers, as wives and girlfriends and like every facet of our life and every way that we show up in the world, we're having to also navigate through tumult and change throughout and be a a steady force and a constant presence in the lives of everybody that we support. So, So there was that, right? And then the anchoring and the grounding was helpful for me to not have to leave the house, but to just be in one place like that felt good. And so those were the things that I felt like, you know, I gained. When you say that you felt like you were sort of happy to have your hand forced, you know, to pivot in a, in a few different ways. As far as traditional doula work, it's not as though birth stopped happening during COVID, right? So, and that's something that you're still engaging in, correct? As, as a birth coach. Yeah, I do far less 
births now mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. teach more. But yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Right. Because that's a hard thing too, especially when you're talking about your Taurus tendencies. It's like that baby's not going to come like at this time, you know, like where it's very like neatly penciled in and you're going to be able to get it done at this time and plan the rest of your day. There's something by nature of being a doula where you're literally at the beck and call of a mother going into labor. And that's really hard for you to kind of create a foundation for your own life Mm -hmm. being on call for other people in that way. Right. So was that something that you felt like you had to adjust? Oh, I've, I've been so adjusted to that because that's been my life for like over a decade and a half was just Mm -hmm. being on call. So Mm -hmm. I'm so used to being on call that my life on the other side, everything's tentative, right? So when I was dating my husband, it was like, um, yeah, maybe, or yeah, like, I'll let you know, or like everything was like that because I was so used to, even if I didn't have a birth, I was still like tentative because my life was always about like, maybe, maybe I'm not sure. So that was something though, that I over time adjusted to. And because of that, because it was so, so ingrained to like be on call, I'm now somebody who can be tentative and be in limbo around everything. So COVID, this idea of like, oh, we don't know what's, I was like, okay. Cause I was yeah, like, you're everything like, is I like that for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like everything's flowy for me. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like, we'll just figure it out as we go. Great. I'll figure, we'll figure it out. Well, so. First of all, beginning at the beginning of everything, I love to talk to people about the notion of designing a life that fits them versus the other way around. And I, I want to hear a little bit about what drew you to this line of work and if this was the sort of life you had envisioned for yourself. You know, I don't ever recall envisioning doula work specifically, what I do recall, you know, growing up with a mother who was deeply uh, committed to education and me understanding my body at an early age and body literacy was huge in our home. I knew anatomically all of um, the body parts. I studied Mm -hmm. plant systems and botany and um, human physiology in college. I was very into sciences. What ended up kind of happening was like I was watching sort of this process unfold for my mother of her pregnancy and subsequent pregnancies with like, you know, family members. And and I had this kind of vision of of birth being this like really magical and mystical thing. And I wasn't told otherwise. So that's what I believed. and, And I was only told that it was great. And and then there was also my cousin who was a couple months older than me, maybe 10 months older. So she and I would um, take our little dolls, our little cabbage patch dolls and stuff them under our shirts and then pretend to deliver each other's babies. So that was kind of how I did things. I also would correct people because I knew all the anatomy. It was one of those things that I was called to do this work. It was, it was not something that I chose. There are consequences for not pursuing your calling, right? And, and a calling is also inconvenient and it's also like drops into your life. And you have to there respond. whether you want it or not, right? Yeah, you have to respond, and 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 you can take your time to respond, but the the call gets louder and louder, and then you know you eventually like you know end up submitting, 
So I've just been obedient to a calling and, and have committed myself to do the work that I've been asked to do. And I believe that I was guided, you know, spirit is what's animating me to do this work. And I just am obedient to what I'm being asked to do. It's really not about me because if I had the choice for myself, there's like things, there's hours of sleep that I would have gotten back, right? There's things that I would probably not do because Mm -hmm. it's like I'm being mandated to do it. And so, yes, I'm committed to it. Yes, I love the work. Yes, I find it deeply inspiring and moving and, and powerful. But I'm also, I've also been anointed to do this work. I've also been like God has put a path forward for me to do this work and to guide other people and to make a legacy for other people to step into. And so that's what I am doing. I am thinking about future building and about legacy building and about birth keeping for my community. I'm thinking about like what's possible beyond what we already see and envisioning something even bigger and, and staying committed to that for the future, right? So I don't remember having these types of dreams about this. I do remember very specifically thinking that I wanted to change the, the landscape and the way that people discussed and thought about and, and, and kind of um, lifted up topics surrounding birth. Mm-hmm. And I knew that there was a couple of ways to do that, but I didn't have like a path forward for that. But when I chose to like be obedient to this path, it's like, you know, things opened, right? And so I think that's just what happens when you answer your call, right? And and I think when you're not aligned necessarily with your calling and you're doing something that is, you know, not purpose aligned or not spirit aligned, then other things come into play. Other things happen that sometimes that don't feel good. And for me, even though this journey has been a fruitful one, as well as a challenging one. It's also been one that like, it just feels good, you know, doing this kind of work and supporting people does really also feel good. So I do get fed from this as well. As I put a lot out, I also get fed a lot from it. Yeah, which is huge. This seems like you said, in being your calling, it feels obviously almost more all encompassing than something that you do. This is who you are. And, you know, we talk about the expectations people have when designing their life of what their professional path is going to afford them in terms of fulfillment, Mm. aside from bread and butter of providing them with financial return. Mm -hmm. And this is like one of those beautiful circumstances where it's a whole holistic experience, both literally and figuratively, but for you too, that that is a extension of who you are and all of your purpose Mm. as a person in your time on this earth, which is so amazing. What about the notion of having it all? Is that something that you ever ascribe to? And if so, what did you think it would look like? And I think it's really interesting to, I guess, ask ourselves, what is all that we're trying to have? Like, what is mm-hmm. the all and what's what's like, what are we throwing into that pot? I guess what I feel like is projected is more like, you know, the career, the home or cars and whatever, you know, the partner of your desire. Right. You know, being able to have, I guess, uh, upward mobility, you know, money to like to work with and move freely with, right? And so I I think that um, I measure my personal fulfillment based upon feeling, you know, how I'm made to feel, uh, how much impact, you know, I'm making in the community. And that's not necessarily like 
uh, correlated with a metric so much as it's with like, right. what's buzzing in the beehive, right? What do we see? What I just witnessed like a mentor hour that our doulas had yesterday um, with one of the doula mentors and just like hearing the things come up and the crying and the like support, like systems, like this is why we do this, right? Like that people have this thriving community and that to me is what makes me feel really proud, you know, and, and good about like what we do. But when I think about like most of what constitutes fulfillment for me, it's not externalized, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think that so much of what, what we lend success to is externalized, right? Because everything that we measure is about things outside of ourselves that we then hoard or hold to say like, mm -hmm. I'm worth something because I have all these things. And I think about it from a lens of more, you know, how I'm made to feel, how I feel in this moment. When I wake up, do I wake up with ease? You know, do I have like, you know, flexibility in my body? Does my mind feel calm? You know, do I get to wake up and can I not turn on my computer for a few hours and the world doesn't blow up, you know, mm -hmm. um, being able to go outside in my garden, which I can look out to and see like all this stuff growing and live the life that I want to have, you know, like to me, these kind of things that are just like make my nervous system feel at ease and allow me to like be in a place of calm. Like that to me is priceless. Like I want to feel at ease and not be worried about these moments that you will never get back, right? Oh my God, yes. Like everything that you're saying is resonating with me so strongly. And that's why I knew I was like, I just feel like this is going to be a very important conversation. Mm. Listen, for all of the listeners today, but also for me personally, I want everything that you are describing. Me but too. I am, I'm that person <laughs> who is the, ah, got to do this, running here, running here. And I feel like my life is at odds with creating an environment where I have that ease. And mm -hmm. some of it is circumstantial, right? Like I have two young kids who haven't gone to school pretty much in a year, three jobs and blah, 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 blah. So, yep. but these in a way, like these are excuses, right? Or this is just what it is. But like, I have to move more into a space to set myself up for what I want because you're having it all that you just described is what I want moving forward. That is my That's new right. having it all. We can, and we can do that. And, and I wouldn't say that it's an excuse. I would say that, you know, we have responsibilities that like that some like that are just here. Right. So if it's like, you think right. about like, okay, my babies, those are my babies. Like I, th that's on my plate, right? Like that's never mm -hmm. going to not be on my plate. Okay. But like, there's other things though. If you think about like how we structured stuff where it's like, like saying, oh, I have to go do this thing. And then when I think about it now, I'm like, God, I wasted, I think about how much time I wasted doing things that I thought were important to do that just weren't. And so when I think about like, okay, let's really sit back. Is it FOMO? Is it something else? Cause like, actually, if I focus my energy here and spend the two hours instead of commuting to go to this thing to network or whatever, Instead, draw the energy towards myself by creating this vacuum by actually focusing on the work. So let me, and not just applying yourself to like an actual duty or a set of like um, steps or, or protocol, but more like committing yourself to like constant action that's aligned with your vision. So that may be actually working on something. It may be thinking about it. It may be just doing work. It may be designing your life in a way and moving aligned with that. So it doesn't mean that every second you're working. And I think that that's the 
this capitalist framework that is so harmful for many of us, we become so like, oh my God, I have to be working. No, like part of it is you have to be dreaming because you have to be thinking about something bigger. You have to get rest. You have to be able to have some time away from the kids so that you can actually expand on your dream or actually roll out this next iteration of your business plan or whatever it is, right? So, so how do I design more space, right? What about like just taking some time just within and exploring your own internal landscape and, and really making sure that whatever, whenever you're ready to whatever it is that you want to do, this next iteration of your business or whatever you want to put out there, that you've spent so much time like really like honoring yourself. And doing the things mm-hmm. that we do for our freaking kids, by the way, all the love you pour into them, oh all my the tenderness gosh, all day. for yourself, mm-hmm. for your, mm-hmm. for yourself. I would love for all of us to be doing that. And for me, that's what like the fulfillment, like really, that's when I feel really good is when I'm like doing all the juiciness for myself, taking my time, moving slow, you know, just taking time because we have precious little of it. And we put so much of our attention on other things that like, by the way, most of our, mostly aren't important. Right. And it's at conflict with the thing you have to do virtually, right? It's at so conflict. you already know that it's stressing you out. I could already be in my pajamas. I could oh, be in my God. pajamas, you- dude. I could be in my pajamas. I'm not in mine now. I'm in a shirt, right? So we have to just feel the the confidence in ourselves to like make the space for what we need and to um and to give ourselves more. I just want us to all think about how much more can I give myself? Right. And to make space to allow yourself to recognize and to assess and understand what you need. That's right. Because if I'm someone who wakes up with the to-do list and I go to bed with another to-do list, my entire day is just about crossing things off. There's no space for me like watering my plants or like taking, like putting my feet in the earth outside. I'm just like hustle mode. And it's like we have this kind of hustle porn And, you know, it's funny because you said, you know, we all sort of, we put our definition of success through the acquisition of these external things. And really, if you dilute it down, it's really all about feelings and emotion too, right? So it's like, yeah, sure, a a car is cool or a watch is great, but really you're not buying it for the nature of it on its own. You're buying it because through that purchase, you think that I will feel more powerful. I will feel closer to that person I want to be if I have these things, you know? And if you felt that way and you didn't need them, then you would be great. And what I think is so important about what you're saying too, is that this is an extension of doula work, right? It's about advocating. Like you are advocating for another person, but to teach people to advocate for their own needs is the biggest And most important lesson, you know, whether that's in the birth process or throughout the rest of our lives, because most of us don't know how to do it. That's right. There you go, Sarah, thousand percent. Let me ask you, I want to talk about the, the idea of advocating for yourself, especially within the birthing process, because I think that that's something that a lot of people don't know that they need to do. Latham, for me personally, obviously, like I said, I have two kids. And the first time I did not have a doula because I said, you know what? I trust the system. And now I look back on that and I think it's so wild that I said that. I had not educated myself on anything, but I'm a doctor's daughter. My brother's a doctor. I felt very comfortable like, you know what? People do this all day, every day. I've got this. It's going to be fine. I don't need a doula. 
And there's something about even through the conversation of advocating for yourself that I felt that there was a negative association with that. And I don't know if that's, you know, my own issue, but that like it would make me too high maintenance or, you know, I was like, I'm not one of those girls. Like I've got this. And what ended up happening in that experience was that my birth went terribly, like, uh, you know, not according to plan. And I wish to this day that I'd had somebody there who I felt could advocate for me better than I had been able to do for myself. And I trust my doctor and I do feel like, you know, she had my best interests at heart, but not in the same way that I would have had if I was you know, advocating with my own voice, or if I'd had someone there like a doula who was there to kind of walk me through it and explain what my options were. I ended up, I was stuck at nine centimeters for hours. And then ultimately they were like, we're getting to a place where we're going to have to pop the baby out the sunroof. Mm -hmm. And it was, I didn't even realize how attached to having a vaginal birth I was until I realized that that wasn't happening Mm -hmm. and it wasn't happening in a really cute kind of planned C-section, you know, go to the dry bar kind of a way. It was happening like post 30 hours of just like heavy labor, Mm. distress. My body was like blown up 50 times. And at the end of it, I had so much regret because I felt like, what if things had been different? You know, what if I'd had someone there who said, look, here's something else we could do. And I will never know. You can't take time back. But do you think most people know that a doula is somebody who is sort of on their side unequivocally during that process and that that's something that people need to be educated about? What I will say is there is a lot to be learned. People need to know that doulas are here. A lot of people do know, but there's so much, so many people who don't. And so we do need to further elucidate the value of having the support. And it goes for any type of birth. You know, if you know you're having a planned scheduled C-section, if you know you're having a VBAC, if you know you're having, uh, if you're- I had a VBAC. Yay! Um, That's that's amazing. Uh, If you know you're having a um, home birth, hospital, wherever, um, doulas can show up in whatever setting. And particularly- for people who have complicated birth, I mean, it's really important. People think, well, I'm having a C-section. It's like, well, there's the after, right? Like the, the afterbirth, the postpartum, like all of that is also very important to have support for. So, so yeah, really, really important, I think, to, to have this ability to, to, to navigate and, and have the supports in place, be able to advocate, speak up for yourself and have people who can speak up alongside you about for your needs and your desires. And yeah, we need to do a better, I shouldn't say a better job, but we need to do continuous work, making sure that people know that these resources are available to them. And regardless of financial background, regardless of, you know, any of that, like doulas are available. I would say if you're looking, look, look early so that you can interview as many people as possible to get a sense of vibe and stuff like that. And also you don't have to have a person in delivery room with you. A lot of people will get educated by doulas so that they can feel like they have childbirth prep and they feel like they can navigate the process with, with somebody. Um, some people will do it so they have virtual support. Some people will do it and have them in the room. Um, it just really depends. There's so many configurations for what support can look like, but I, I definitely think that it's invaluable to have. 
um, especially the education, regardless of whether or not someone's in the room, I do believe that if you can, you should have someone in the room because there's things that happen that some people just don't prepare for. Like you said, yeah, I think it's a really wonderful way to, uh, to, to enter into the, um, you know, the process of new parenthood is just to have that support in place. In the situation that I was in, all of a sudden, you know, it's like there's beeping. People are like, oh, the baby's in distress. Obviously, that's all I have to hear to say, like, do whatever you need to do. Yeah. But how do you stay calm and deal with informed consent at that point? Yeah, so informed consent is should be a constant refrain throughout the birthing experience. So at every juncture where there's a procedure or treatment to be undergone in any capacity, uh, consent has to be a part of that equation. And so informed consent is just a legal doctrine that basically states that um, prior to a procedure or treatment that a doctor or care provider will provide adequate information about that procedure or treatment so that you can actually consent to it prior to administering the procedure or treatment, right? So it can't be like after you've done it, it can't be during, it can't be like, oh, I'm releasing my arm for you to draw blood. And then you tell me afterwards, that's called cooperation, not consent, right? And so a lot of things get confused as consent, but they're not. So what happens a lot in in the medical space is that people don't feel like they have the authority to speak up or even write, but you actually have a lot of rights that don't get exercised. Um, because people don't actually feel the safe to exercise those rights inside of medical spaces. We're talking about like, you know, we see a progression with that we don't like to see. This can indicate distress. So we're just going to get ahead of it. They don't wait till the baby is in danger to, to deliver a C-section, right? So it's really about like seeing signs that indicate that the baby's unhappy and making a preemptive decision to protect both the, the mother or birthing person and the baby, right? And so it always has to be about you feeling safety, dignity, and a sense of belonging. You have to feel seen and heard and witnessed in your desires and your needs. Right. Oh my God. I wish, I wish that you were with me, you know, nine years ago. Um, I'm with you now. In that room. <laughs> You're with me now if I, if I ever do it again. But listen, it's our own responsibility and job to inform ourselves and to educate ourselves. But a lot of us don't do that. And a lot of us get caught up in the emotion and the fear and everything else. And that's why it's so helpful to have somebody else who's there. You know, we talk about this. So for you as a maternal wellness advocate, I recently read an article about America's black maternal health care crisis with mm-hmm. black women in the United States being three to four times more likely to die in childbirth or pregnancy related causes than white women. Mm-hmm. And studies have found that black women are two to three times more likely to die from preeclampsia, eclampsia. I, I'm not even sure I'm saying this correctly. Abruptio placenta, mm-hmm. placenta, mm-hmm. placenta previa, postpartum hemorrhage, etc. What's going on here? You know, it's really about racism, not race, right? So you you happen to be in this body. It's not because you live in this body that there are problems with you. It's because you live in this body that you are being treated this certain way when you move through these spaces. And so um, all of our systems that we're talking about, institutions are like uh, encoded with bias, right? And so when people are entering into a place where They're seen as being impervious to pain, seen as strong, right? Seen as, um, you know, not in need of immediate medical attention. 
uh, people who are underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed, people who on average sit at least two hours in the emergency room before being seen, right? People who are seen as being frequent drug users, you know, so the idea that like that you would be administered drugs, like you're coming to the hospital for drugs, right? That's the lens that you're being looked through. So, so there's a lot of things that happen that set people on a path towards mistrust, um, but also that um, impacts birth outcomes. We also see that um, within the community, uh, low birth weight babies, babies being born too sick or too soon. Um, is also common, but correlated again with stress, things like economic pressure, poverty, which is another pandemic, right? But you know, it's 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 definitely not a, an economic thing because we see people like Serena Williams and Beyonce who also talked about their near uh, misses, and Serena really like um, nearly lost her life, right? And so if we think about somebody like her who could almost die in childbirth, who has all the resources, then we know that it's not correlated with finances, right? There's many pathways. And so people need to be educated about out of hospital birth and what it looks like to have a home birth or birth center births and being able to also have access to culturally competent care. You need doctors that are like you and come from your community, speak your language, you know, doctors um, and midwives who have a competency in how they can care for you and the background that you're from and with your unique needs that you may have. Um, you need that, right? And and right now, you know, we, we're not in a country that has enough providers to actually provide that type of care. I happen to have met so many amazing doctors, right, that are really looking to change the way um, our system is, but they can't do it on their own, right? So so it takes it takes a lot of us, but it also takes actively divesting in the places and and institutions that are not doing a good job. And so we can do the work by like looking at the statistics for, for birth outcomes, as well as for um, um, neonatal outcomes and maternal deaths, as well as C-section rates, all the stuff we can look at on an institutional level. We can look up practitioners and how they're doing. There's a really great app called Earth, I-R-T-H, Earth app. And it's like mm -hmm. birth without the B. So right. dropping the B for bias. So Earth. And it's an awesome app that basically looks at, um, it's like the Yelp for birth. And so you can put in information about your experience with your provider and you can use your voice as a wow. consumer a, mm -hmm. and speak about your experience. And so somebody with your same profile can go in there and they can see what you've said about doctors. They can see also, you know, what the best doctor would be for them. If you're a same-sex couple and you go in, you're like, ooh, this person did not treat same-sex couples well. Or, you know, you go in, you're a single mother or something, you go in and they're like, ooh, this person was not nice and, you know, whatever. So you can see that, but you can also see reviews on doctors who have done a really outstanding job and great providers, right? So we need to use things like this consumer-based tools as well to help amplify our voices and, and speak to change because accountability is not there yet. So until we get there, you know, we have to create our own as a community. So there's there's great technology that's coming together that can help us as well. But we have to, it's like, we all have to take a vested interest. It's not an issue. It's not a black issue. It's not a women's issue. This is a human rights issue. Like this is a, this is an issue of, um, of reproductive justice. This is an issue of birth equity. This is an issue for all of us that we should be making sure that nobody should be dying. Because by the way, it's not just black women who are dying. White women are dying too right? But we're dying the most. <laughs> and 
right? Mm-hmm. So we need to get this mm-hmm. right. If we get it right for black women, everybody will survive. Everybody will be doing better. So, so we just need to do that work. But yes, there are things that we can do and we can do that we can do today to improve it. You know, if you want to become a doula, you can do that. If you want to support um, doulas or, or, or donate to training programs so that people can have, um, you know, a pathway to get that support because many people can't afford to do the trainings even sometimes, you know, that's a way that you can support. Um, you know, we have um, at the Mama Glow Foundation, we have pathways for doulas and midwives for training, which, which is really like uh, educational um, scholarship support and stuff that we grant. So there's like things like that that are out in the world that you can like get behind, right? If you want to do something active, but not necessarily like do the, do the actual work in the world, you can actually support other people who are doing the work. So there's many ways for us to, to combat what's going on, but it does start with all of us kind of banding together to do the work. Right. Well, I'm so in awe of all the work that you are doing. And I, you know, I appreciate you being here today and talking to me about it. And also, I just hope that everybody will continue to advocate for themselves and to learn and read as much as possible and educate themselves. And I think, you know, a lot of people, myself included, they don't want to rock the boat too much. And they want to just kind of, you know, keep it moving. And I didn't want to kind of require special treatment. And I was just like, I'll go through, it's going to be fine. And it really wasn't ultimately, you know, and I think that we could all work towards having better experiences and educating ourselves and looking into the options. For anyone who doesn't follow you already, where can they find you? Yeah. So you can just find me at mamaglow.com. If you're on Instagram, glowmaven, G-L-O-W-M-A-B-E-N. And then at Mama Glow, which is just M-A-M-A-G-L-O-W. We have a lot of fun stuff happening over there too. But yeah, see you guys over there. And you have great resources also for people who are, you know, not pregnant. This is just about wellness and self-sustenance and all the things that we really need to tap into right now, especially in just learning to sustain ourselves and being the, you know, the most full versions of ourselves that we can be. Latham, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you too. Having It All in Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Bigas. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.